All right, be good if we have our Bibles open there at uh, Revelation chapter 2. A a teacher once asked a teenager if he could summarise the book of Revelation in one sentence. And uh, quick as anything, the young person replied, sure, that's easy. Uh, The teacher was a bit surprised at uh, his... uh, uh, the ease with which he thought he could answer the question. And he said, okay, well, what is it? He said, it's simple. Jesus wins. And uh, if you go to the back of the book, you'll find that's exactly the way it is. Jesus wins. Revelation chapters 19 and 20 tells us that Jesus comes back to rule and reign upon the earth for a thousand years. Chapters 21 and 22, he eternally rules the new heavens and the new earth. But before his final victory over Satan, Revelations chapters 6 through 20 um, and the rapture of the church, which we read about in chapters 4 and 5, before those things happen, Jesus uh, fulfills his promise to build his church. That's the promise that he made back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in order to complete the project of building his church, Jesus knows that there are some individual churches churches that need to be remodeled and even some that perhaps even need to be rebuilt. And so he very lovingly but very directly writes to seven churches which are in Asia Minor, assessing their condition And he proclaims his assessment to all churches everywhere. And in so doing, we are given insights into what Christ values and what he considers vile. We're given instructions on what to continue doing in his church. And we are given instructions as to what needs to change. And so these seven churches provide us with models to which we can compare churches in the present day. And the answer to the question is, what does Christ think about our church? Now, it's not good to compare our churches to other churches, and that's not our concern. We're comparing ourselves to the wrong standard. The question is, what does Christ require of us? Now, last Saturday night, sorry, last last Sunday night, we studied the Love Lost Church at Ephesus. And, or the Lost Love Church at Ephesus. And we also studied the Suffering Church of Smyrna. But tonight we turn to the Compromising Church in Pergamos and the Corrupt Church at Thyatira. So firstly, let's consider the, the church at Pergamos, the, the Compromised Church. And I've given you on the outline sheet just a, like a summary statement which gives an overview which is sort of going to guide us as we go through here. But just so the, as you know what's happening here, Jesus commends this church, the church at Pergamos, for persevering in faithfulness in spite of persecution. But he warns them against compromise with an idolatrous and immoral culture. Now last last Sunday night, Pastor Brendan pointed out that all seven letters to the churches share a similar distinctive structure. And we're just going to follow that structure for both of these churches tonight. First of all, we see the church identified in verse 12. And if you look at your map, Pergamos was about 160 kilometres north of Ephesus. 
with Smyrna located about halfway in between. You can see it wasn't a port city being located about 20 kilometres inland from the Aegean Sea. However, it was the area's capital city. It had a massive library that contained some 200,000 volumes. Only the library in Alexandria was greater. According to legend, parchment was invented by the people of Pergamos to provide writing materials for their library. And the word parchment may even be derived from the word Pergamos. But because of its library, Pergamos was an important centre of culture and learning and hence it was the home for many princes and priests and scholars who wished to study there. The city was also famous for its marble, marble carvings and it surpassed the other six cities named in Revelation 2 and 3 in its architectural beauty. It was considered Asia's greatest city. The Roman writer Pliny called it by a quote, by far the most distinguished city in Asia. And by the time that John penned the book of Revelation, Pergamos had been Asia's capital for almost 250 years. Interesting, Pergamos still survives today as the Turkish city of Bergama. But the city was also noted for its pagan religions and its many heathen temples. It was the centre of worship for four main gods, small g. The great altar dedicated to Zeus was in this city, along with an altar to Athena, the patron goddess of Athens. They also worshipped Dionysius, the god of vegetation, and Asculpius, the god of healing. A medical school attached to this cult was also there. And the medical profession there had as its insignia the well-known serpent upon a pole. But overshadowing the worship of all those pagan deities, Pergamos had, was devoted to the cult of emperor worship. Last week we saw that the church at Smyrna faced the same kind of situation. Pergamos built a temple in honour of Empress Augustus in 29 BC and built, built two more temples honouring Empress Trajan and Septimus Severus. And the city became a centre of worship, uh, emperor worship in the province. And Christians there were in danger of being persecuted from the emperor worship cult. In other cities, Christians primarily faced danger from the emperor worship cults one day a year, one day a year, when they were required to sacrifice to the emperor. But at Pergamos, they faced that threat every day of the year. Now, we don't know anything about the origin of the church. We don't know who started it. We don't know when it was started, but we do know where it was situated. It had been established, verse 13 tells us, where Satan's seat is. The Greek word for seat is throne, usually translated thronos. Or that's the word thronos, usually translated throne. And through this cult of emperor worship and the idolatrous worship of various heathen gods, Satan had firmly established himself in this city. In that city that was full of spiritual darkness, in that city, with all of this devilish influence, there had been a local church established. 
And we ha- the, way that we, the way that we have to think about that, that was a tremendous blessing. That the light of the gospel shone, shone brightly in such a very, very dark place. Now, Satan is a created being with no attributes of deity. He is not omniscient, but he does have at his disposal an efficient organisation of fallen angels and demons. He is not omnipotent, even though he is very powerful. He extends his power through a hierarchical structure of principalities and powers, wicked spirits in high places. He is not omnipresent. He can only be at one place at one time. But he is the prince of the power of the air, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. He is the prince of this world, Jesus said in John 12, 31. And as such, he maintains a throne somewhere in the earth. And at this time, it was at Pergamos. He'd set up his operation there in the center of learning. With all the healing arts, with all the practice of idolatry, and through all of this, he sought to control people's minds through the library. He sought to control people's, um, people's bodies through the healing cults. He sought to control their souls through the pagan religion. This is the place where the church of Pergamos was situated. Boldly, the church took its stand in the midst of such wickedness. However, over time... Instead of remaining firm, the church began to drift into compromise. Yes, there were many in the church who were resisting the general flow of the tide of compromise, but there were many who were being swept away in the strong current of compromise. Well, secondly, we see Christ's character revealed to this church. Christ reveals himself to this church, verse 12b. As he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. He identifies himself using one of the distinctive phrases from the vision that John saw in chapter 1 verses 12 to 17. Now we noticed previously that the sharp two-edged sword refers to the word of God. The two edges of the sword depict the word's power in exposing and penetrating the innermost thoughts of the heart and the soul. God's word never wields a dull edge. And the description here of Christ pictures Christ as judge and executioner, as verse 16 makes clear. Describing his appearance at the second coming, John writes, Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he would smite the nations, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. This is not a positive introduction of Christ to this church. It is a threatening one. And this is the first negative introduction that Jesus has as presented to the church because Pergamos was in serious threat of judgment. Disaster loomed on the horizon for this compromising church. And it was and it is but a short step from compromising with the world to forsaking God altogether, facing his wrath. But before he addresses that, Christ has a word of commendation for this church. In verse 13, the Lord commended the works of these believers who stayed faithful in the midst of such believers. There, were, there was a faithful remnant in the church. 
And he the, he, the Lord, was well aware of the conditions that they ministered under. He was very, very well, very, very aware of the pressure which, the, which was being exerted upon them from this culture. And these faithful people lived out their commitment to the Lord in three ways. Firstly, he tell, says they were bold in, in holding fast to his name, verse 13. There was a remnant of believers there in the church who loved the Lord, remained loyal to the Lord in the, in the shadow of Satan's throne. Secondly, he said they had not denied his faith. They were willing to confess their faith in the Lord, their faith in the, the Christian faith as the only way of salvation, God being the only true God. And in doing so, they, they put their lives on the line in the, in the midst of a society that was controlled by Satan. And thirdly, Christ recognised Antipas, referring to him as my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Nothing certain is known about Antipas, apart from what we read in this text. His name means against all, and it seems as if this man did stand against all. Possibly he may have been one of the leaders of the church, but he died standing faithful to the name of Christ, to the doctrine of Christ, which was being opposed by satanically inspired people. Fourthly, we then read the... The Lord's criticism of this church. In verse 14, we see that the Lord had a few things against this church. Unlike the church at Ephesus where the Lord said, I have somewhat, something, one thing against you. The Lord has several things here. And while some of the believers at Pergamos were faithful to the truth, there were others who were following wrong doctrine. And today, as we think about the professing church at large, many Christians make light of doctrine. They tell us that sound theology is not important, but that is not the perspective of Christ. Tragically, this church at Pergamos had embraced false doctrine. They failed to obey the biblical command to be separate from false teachers and wicked practice. They let false teachers into the church and then on top of that, they failed to obey the biblical mandate to practice church discipline, to put such people out of the church. It's hard to even think that such false teachers could even be saved, that they could even be members of the church, let alone have positions of authority teaching in the church. Specifically, Christ was concerned with two false doctrines. The first was associated with an Old Testament character. Some were following the doctrines of Balaam, verse 14. Balaam, who we read about in the book of Numbers, chapter 14. Uh, sorry, chapter 22, 23. Balaam was a gifted prophet who prostituted his gift for financial gain and for worldly honour. He was hired by Balak, king of Moab, to pronounce a curse on the nation of Israel. Balaam tried to curse them three times, but failed because of the restraining power of God. But since he wasn't able to curse Israel, whom God had blessed, Balaam conceived a plan to have the men of Israel enter into mixed marriages with Moabite women, thus producing a spiritual compromise. In other words, when Satan couldn't physically destroy the Israelites, he, just, he tried to destroy them by lead, leading them into this compromising union with the ungodly. So that Israel would no longer be separated unto the Lord, but would be defiled by idolatrous beliefs and immoral practices. 
And Christ mentions three practices within the doctrine of Balaam that were affecting the believers in the church at Pergamos. Firstly, they had entered into mixed marriages with unbelievers, thereby corrupting and destroying their distinctive Christian families. Secondly, they were eating things sacrificed unto idols, verse 14, and thereby entered into idolatrous practice. And thirdly, they were committing sexual sin of fornication, thereby corrupting their moral purity. Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. And judging by the fruits that we see here, we can see that the doctrine of Balaam is rotten to the core. And the church at Pergamos should never have had anything to do with it. Yes, there was pressure from the surrounding culture to conform to all of this. And yet there were some in the church who were standing firm. And sadly, many were not. The second false doctrine that had crept into the church was associated not with an Old Testament character, but with a New Testament person, Nicholas. And his followers, the Nicolaitans. The deeds of the Nicolaitans are mentioned in the church in the letter of the church at Ephesus. They had nothing to do with it in Ephesus. But here the church of Pergamos had not only approved of their deeds, it also embraced the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now the context indicates that the false teaching of the Nicolaitans led basically to the same wicked practices as the followers of Balaam. The tragedy was that the church of Pergamos tolerated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which the Lord said, which doctrine I hate. This cult professed faith in Christ, but taught antinomianism. There is no, no law, lawlessness. They practiced licentious living while professing faith in Christ. And while many professing Christians today in the church at large do make light of doctrine and do make light of theology, that is not the perspective of Christ. And many Christians in the professing church today make light of holiness, they make light of personal purity, they think that's not important, that is not the perspective of Christ. Christ speaks in the strongest language against such things. He says, these are the things that I hate. They're not unimportant. Fifthly, we see the Lord's counsel and correction. The only remedy for such erroneous belief and sinful behaviour is, verse 16, to repent. Repent, the English word repent is from the Greek word used to describe, it means a change of mind, which results in a change of behaviour. Whilst tolerance is celebrated in our culture, tolerating heretical teaching and sinful behavior is sin itself tolerating such things and Christ warns them repent or else okay, that's threatening language repent or else I'll come unto thee quickly and I'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth notice carefully the change of pronouns here the Lord says I will come unto thee and fight against them okay? the Lord still has his church but there are those that are defiling it and he disowns them. He is against them. In fact, he declares war on them. Truly the Lord knows them that are his. He knows how to sort out the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. And yet the entire church faced Christ's judgments. 
the heretics for practicing the sin and the rest of the church for tolerating it. The church cannot tolerate evil. The goal of the church is not to provide an, an environment in which unsaved people, unbelieving people are made to feel very, very comfortable. That's not our job to do that. It is to be, the church is to be a place where unsaved people are confronted with the truth. Convicted by the truth about their sin. And so they're led to be saved. And we need to do that patiently, gently, meekly, as it says in 2 Timothy 2. Lovingly, graciously, yet firmly, unbelievers need to be confronted with the reality of their sin and God's gracious provision of salvation in Jesus Christ. False doctrine will never be removed and sin will never be suppressed by compromising with it. Number six, we see then this charge to all churches. Christ concludes this letter with words of encouragement. As noticed previously, this phrase, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, stresses the importance of Christ's words and the responsibility of all believers everywhere to hear them and obey them. What is the Lord saying to the churches through this? What message is it that the Lord wants us to hear? Well, there are numerous messages. Let me articulate some of them. This would be one, one message the Lord wants us to hear. It is a fact that some locations are more challenging believers than other locations due to the proximity of the evil in the culture surrounding. That is a fact. Some places it's harder than others. Some places it's worse than others. And the Pergamos people, they experienced some trial and pressure that churches in other places didn't and churches in other places don't. That's a fact. Secondly, faithfulness to Jesus Christ requires persevering for Christ. And such perseverance may result in persecution and may even result in martyrdom. Jesus taught us as much. We read the book of Acts, we read as much happened in the book of Acts. People martyred for the Lord. And here in the book of Revelation, we read the church of Pergamos, it happened there. Faithfulness to Christ in some contexts will bring upon us great persecution and perhaps even martyrdom. Thirdly, what the Spirit is saying to the churches is that Jesus opposes in the strongest way false teaching. That encourages compromise with a pagan culture. And fourthly, Jesus judges by the sheer power of his word. These are some of the things that the Spirit of God is saying to us through his message to the church of Pergamos. But then verse 17 concludes with a challenge and a promise of reward. There were three things that marked the heresy at Pergamos. There was idolatry, there was immorality, and there was infidelity. And the overcomers in the church kept themselves from those three things. And they received three rewards commensurate with their conduct. Firstly, the overcomers there kept themselves from idolatry. They refused to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And to them the Lord says... To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. They didn't eat the meat, the food offered unto idols and entered into idolatry. Rather, as a reward, the Lord gives them to eat of the hidden manna. 
The idea of hidden manna reminds us of the pot of manna that was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. There as a memorial for future generations. Jesus made it very, very clear. He is the manna. He is the manna which has come down from heaven. Here he's described as the hidden manna. The one whom the world cannot see spiritually. They cannot see him. And yet the Christian is sustained by him. Jesus is the bread of life. And he will feed us. Don't think we're depriving ourselves by not participating in you know, food offered under idols. Idol worship. Don't think we're deprived in any way. Because the Lord gives us better food, eternal sustenance. More satisfying than anything the idols could offer. Secondly, the overcomer also kept himself from immorality. Refused to take place of the loose living associated with pagan worship. And to them the Lord says, I will give him a white stone. In that culture at that time... There was a Roman custom of awarding a white stone to victors in the athletics contests. And that same white stone then also was a ticket to the special awards banquet that followed. And this surely, if nothing else, is a symbol of the changeless purity of Christ. Christ is the white stone, the stone cut out without hands, the stone of dazzling purity. And the overcomer is given evidence that he has entered into the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as the victor over every defiling thing. And will enter into that awards banquet of the eternal victory and celebration in heaven. And thirdly, the overcomer kept himself from infidelity. The Balaamites and the Nicolaitans were setting up names of men in the place of the all-sufficient name of Christ. And the overcomers there had absolutely nothing to do with that. And the Lord says that upon the stone that he bestows to them, he will give the overcomer a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. The name is secret. The overcomer is brought into a relationship which is so close to the Lord that the Lord can give him knowledge of himself that no one else can share. Church of Pergamos faced some of the choices that every Christian faces today. They could repent of their compromising with wickedness and enjoy all the blessings, the eternal blessings of the glory of heaven, or they could refuse to repent and face the terrifying reality of having Christ declare war on them. Maintaining the path of compromise ultimately leads to judgment. Therefore, believers today must also heed this warning and guard against compromising with heretical doctrines and ungodly practice. Then there is the church at Thyatira, the corrupted church. Again, this summary just at the beginning there. Jesus commends this church for loving God, for serving people, for being faithful and for persevering under trial. But he warns of judgment for those who go along with false teaching that promotes idolatry and immorality. In verse 18 we see the church identified. If you look at that map again you can see Pergamos is the northernmost of the seven cities. The Roman road curved east and then southeast to Thyatira. Prox 
approximately 65 kilometres away. The city was founded about 300 BC. In about 190 BC, it was conquered by the Roman, Romans, and then it became a flourishing commercial centre. By the time the book of Revelation was written, Thyatira was just entering its period of greatest prosperity. Thyatira was known for its numerous guilds, G-U-I-L-D-S, that is similar today to what we might call a trade union. The main industry at the time was wool. And it was famous for its dyeing, D-Y-E, dyeing facilities. It was the centre of the purple cloth trade. Ancient inscriptions also mentions guilds for linen workers, uh, for dyers, for leather workers, for tanners, for potters, for bakers, for slave dealers and for bronze smiths. And although the city was not a religious centre, emperor worship did exist. And each trade guild worshipped its own god, which usually included the practice of sexual immorality. Probably Christians belonged to these trade guilds as well, and so the pressure was on them to conform to pagan worship. Failure to participate meant losing one's livelihood or being blacklisted from the trade. Now, Scripture doesn't indicate when this church in Thyatira was established. Although Acts chapter 16 tells us that Lydia, who came to the Lord under Paul's ministry at Philippi, she was a seller of purple and she was originally from the city of Thyatira. Although we don't know if she had anything to do with the founding of the church. The church, although located in the smallest city among the seven mentioned, Revelation 2 and 3, it received the longest letter. Secondly, we see Christ's character revealed in this church. This church, Christ reveals himself in verse 18 as the Son of God. And then there follows two other descriptive phrases drawn from the vision of the risen Christ, Revelation 1 verses 12 to 17. And those two phrases focus on Christ's role as divine judge. Son of God emphasizes Christ's deity, stressing he is of one essence with the Father. And this is a significant change of wording here. The vision recorded in chapter 1, Christ is described there as the Son of Man, verse 13. The, the title Son of Man views Christ in his humanity. In his ability to sympathise with our needs and trials and the temptations that face his church. Here, however, he's identified as the Son of God. And this is the only time he's referred to by this title in the book of Revelation. Here the emphasis is on his deity. Because his approach to the church of Thyatira is as divine judge. As the divine, the divine Son of God, Jesus Christ, has eyes like unto a flame of fire, his piercing vision sees all. Revelation 19.12 describes Christ coming in victory at the battle of Armageddon with eyes that are as a flame of fire, it says. You know, a church, any church may feel satisfied with itself. It may have a good reputation in the community or even amongst other churches. However, it, the eyes of Christ see things as they truly are. And the description of his feet as being like fine brass is similar to Revelation 19 verse 15 where Christ's feet are described as treading the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty 
God. Christ's feet glowed brilliantly here like fine brass. It depicts his purity and his holiness as he stamps out impurity. And I think that this terrifying description of Christ must have created a shock when this letter was read to the church of Thyatira. It came as a sobering realisation that Christ will judge ongoing unrepented sin. And yet the Lord finds something to commend about this church, verse 19. Indeed, there were many commendable things about it. The Lord commends the church for five works. Firstly, their love for Christ. Something which, by the way, is not commended in any other churches. In some ways, Thyatira was strong where Ephesus was weak. He commends them for their service. Their love expressed in practical ministry to others, sacrificially reaching out to others. That was commendable. The Lord also commends them for their faith, their faithfulness. Small group within the church was faithful to the Lord. They were loyal to the Lord and his word. Fourthly, their patience is also commended. Their endurance under trial. And fifthly, he acknowledges that they weren't standing still, but growing, developing in their ministry for their last works were more than the first, which was the opposite of Ephesus. They were going backward. This church was going forward in these things. In other words, their loving, faithful service to the Lord and to others under adverse circumstances was becoming more consistent. And yet, verse 20, the Lord did, however, express major complaints against this church because he says in verse 20, they allowed, verse 20, that woman Jezebel who calleth herself a prophetess to teach. In other words, the real problem for this church was not, it was not external persecution, but it was some internal corruption. Their sin consisted of two parts. First, they violated the biblical preaching, or the biblical teaching rather, that women not to be teachers or preachers in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12. And because they had violated the biblical teaching, they allowed this woman Jezebel to teach. She was a self-appointed prophetess. Not only did they allow her to teach, secondly, they allowed her to teach error. And as a result, Jesus declares in verse 20, she has seduced my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed under idols. Now, Jezebel was probably not her real name. But her actions certainly resembled the Jezebel of the Old Testament who was married to King Ahab. And therefore, Christ labels her this symbolic name, Jezebel. The Old Testament Jezebel was an unspeakably vile woman. And through her evil influence, Baal worship became widespread in Israel. And likewise, this woman in Thyatira, through her influence, she succeeded in leading Christ's servants to go astray. So they committed acts of immorality. And again, eight things sacrificed under idols, participating in idol worship. And whatever the specific content of her false teaching, it led the majority of the people in the church astray from the truth and away from righteousness. Fifthly, we see the Lord's counsel and correction. 
The Lord counseled this self-appointed prophetess to repent. Verse 21. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication. And she repented not. As so often happens, the Lord's long-suffering and patience is misconstrued. That is because God doesn't strike down people for their wickedness in a moment. People deceive themselves into imagining that therefore God never will. God doesn't really care about this, this is okay. And yet they don't know what Paul says in Romans chapter 2 verse 4, that, that the goodness of God leads this, is leading them to repentance. That's why the Lord doesn't act immediately and judge them on the spot. Because he's waiting for them to repent. He's giving them time to repent. God stays his hand solely that people might seize the opportunity to repent. But apparently this woman, who was causing trouble in Thyatira, far from seeing God's hand mercifully extended towards her in the absence of judgment, she simply congratulated herself on her apparent success. And her wickedness was going on and on and on. God therefore threatened three judgments upon her and her followers. Firstly, he said he would cast her into a bed, verse 22. From her bed of immorality into a bed of sickness, that's what's implied there, a sick bed of disease and ultimately death. Secondly, those who commit adultery with her would suffer great tribulation, except they repent, unless they repent, verse 22. This is not the tribulation you described in chapters uh, 4 through 19. Upon the earth. The word for tribulation means distress or trouble. And what it's saying here that those following this false teaching of this woman, they themselves would enter, be, would, would, would receive tribulation, great suffering, chastisement of the Lord, ultimately death. Verse 3 I will kill her children with death. All of her followers. Both the original followers and the second generation of professing believers would suffer the same fate. And their doom would leave no doubt to the church that this was in fact the judgment of God, verse 23. That all the churches may know that I am he which searches the reins and the hearts and I'll give to every one of you according to your works. In the scripture salvation is always according to faith but judgment is always on the basis of works. Classic passage of that is Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. The Lord who knows us perfectly, the Lord who knows all that we do, the Lord who knows the underlying motives, the courses of action, the ultimate outcome, the influences, all the effect, the Lord who knows all of those things is the only one who's able to give perfect judgment. And Hannah proclaimed that same point in her remarkable prayer of thanksgiving. The Lord is a God of knowledge. By him actions are weighed. And thus it was with Belshazzar. Daniel told this arrogant king, Thou art weighed in the balances. God's balances. You'll be weighed in God's balances. And guess what? He says, You've been found wanting. The Lord takes your works and put them on balances. His standard is over here. Your works are over here. And do, do, do our works meet up to his standard? He's the one. We might pronounce that about ourselves. Yeah, okay, I do enough good works. Surely my good works please the Lord. We're waiting his balances, not our own. Waiting his balances, we're found. We don't measure up. Verse 24 says, To the rest in Thyatira, that is to the faithful remnant, 
who did not embrace this doctrine that it had its, that had its origin in the deep things of Satan, the Lord wouldn't put upon them any greater responsibility than what they were already under. Lord, no other burden put upon these faithful people. What they had was enough. He would sustain them. Lord doesn't tell them to leave that church, but to hold fast. Stand for the truth without compromise. Until he comes for the church, verse 25. Number seven, we have this challenge of promise. Challenge and promise of reward. There were two promises made. To those who remained faithful. Two promises made to the overcomers. Who would faithfully keep the Lord's word until the end. Firstly verse 26. They'll be given power over the nations. That is the overcomers would be given authority to rule over the nations in the millennium. Which is a privilege that they share with the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 2. And that privilege is given them from God the Father. The nations in the millennium who rebel against Christ and his rule and threaten his people, they will be judged. And those who rule with him will help protect his people and promote holiness and righteousness in the millennium. Actually, the word rule there in verse 27 means to shepherd. Believers will rule and reign with Christ, not only executing judgment, but administering mercy and direction and protection to the nations during the millennial age. That's one reward promise. The second one is that they will be given the morning star, verse 28. Which is a title that Jesus assumes for himself. Chapter 22, verse 16. In other words, Jesus says that he will give himself to the overcomers. Jesus gives himself in all of his fullness as a reward. The morning star shines brightly over the dark earth just before the dawn. And at the rapture, Christ will return to this dark world to take away believers before the tribulation and later to appear in all of his glory to usher in the dawn of the millennial kingdom. Number seven, we see a charge to all churches, verse 29. Christ closes his letter to Thyatira as he did with letters to the other churches. He that hath an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit is saying to the churches. In these concluding words, there is a charge for us to listen and to follow the message that the Lord has to the churches, spoken specifically to the church of Thessalonica, but intended for all the churches. What's the Lord saying? What's the Lord saying to us? Several important things stand out. Firstly, Jesus stands above all other gods and possesses power and insight to judge. Secondly, it pleases God when his children are growing in faith and in love and in service and in patience. These are the things that he commends. And when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, brethren, these are the things that he commends. We don't need to be worried whether what we've done stacks up or not. Because he tells us in advance those things which he finds commendable. These are the things that he rewards. Thirdly, 
God will judge false teachers and their followers for leading God's people astray. Fourthly, those who are dabbling in false teaching have a limited amount of time to repent. Fifthly, God calls his people to persevere by holding on to the central truths of the Christian faith. And number six, we can look forward to sharing in Christ's authority in the millennial kingdom. These are some of the things that the Spirit of God is saying to us through the letter of the church at Thessalonica. Something else that he says to the seven churches, which is very evident message to be proclaimed to all churches everywhere, and that is this. It's very obvious that a person is not saved by their works. In every letter to the seven churches, that's a message that comes through time and time again. No one is saved by their works. The message for people who sin is not do better work so that you might be approved of God. The, 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 the message that comes through time and time again of people who are doing the wrong thing, the message is repent. Same message. doesn't matter what sin you're committing. The church has committed different kinds of sin. It's the same message always. You need to repent. This is the thing that brings us back to God. This is the thing that brings about a reconciliation. A change in our thinking which leads to a change of direction. We cannot go on sinning. Okay, that's the wrong thing to do. We've got to t turn from that. We have to understand, think about this. This is the thing that's leading me to stray. This is the thing that is bringing about the judgment of God. If I continue going this way, this will happen. Judgment will fall. This is the message that comes through time and time again. And the person who is on that, path, on that pathway, the message is not do good works in order to be saved. No, where, where's Christ in that? Christ is the one who calls us to repent of our sin and turn to him and to trust in him and him alone. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, it's the one who shed his precious blood for us. He's the one who washes us from our sin. Your good works don't stack up. Your good works don't take away your sin. It's only the blood of Christ that takes away sin. Our only hope of salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. The only way that people escape judgment is through Christ and Christ alone. The message given to the churches to proclaim is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. This is the message that was preached in the first church at Pentecost. This is the message that's been proclaimed by all churches throughout all ages. This is the faithful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And the churches that got in trouble in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are churches that left that message somehow. And this is the message that we need to come back to time and time again. It's the message we repeat again this evening. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. By the washing of regeneration, by renewing of the Holy Spirit. For by grace are ye saved through faith, not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Our boasting is in Christ and Christ alone. This is the message given to the church, which we proclaim again this evening. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your...
care for the churches, uh, the, the prominent place that they have in your economy in this era. I thank you for your close proximity to the churches. There you are in the midst of the churches. You love the church. You gave yourself for it. You're zealous for the prosperity and the fruitfulness of the churches, the faithfulness of churches. And Lord, we pray that you would find us that way. Lord, please find us faithful. May we resolve each day as people who are part of Condal Park Bible Church that we would represent you well in the world. Lord, keep us from error. Lord, may we as individuals be daily in your word, filling our minds, renewing our minds with the word, more, more impacted by the word of God, less conformed to the world. Uh, Lord, as it were to turn off uh, the media, which tells us many ungodly things, to open our minds, open our hearts to the word of God, the pure word of God. Please sanctify us daily by the word and through the spirit. And then as we gather together as a church, May all of our services, our worship services, our ministries be faithful to the word of God, keeping the main thing the main thing. Lord, help us to be of one mind and one mouth in these things. Help us to help one another to stay on track, to be faithful to the Lord Jesus. And Lord, help us to keep proclaiming the message of salvation through Christ and Christ alone. Lord, help us not to deviate from that message. And Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who hasn't yet received Christ as their saviour, pray that they would see that Christ is their only hope of salvation. They'll never be saved by their works, they'll never be good enough. But Christ has shed his precious blood for the forgiveness of our sin, returning from our sin, turning to Christ. Someone, anyone can be saved. Thank you that there is forgiveness with thee. Thank you that you're patient with us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, for someone that may even be the case this evening. Well, thank you for the message that you have for us tonight. Uh, thank you for faithfully speaking to us. Uh, Lord, help us to submit, help us to obey what you say to us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.